Our reading today is from the fourth chapter of John. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The word of the Lord. Our scripture this morning is 
one of those passages that just has everything in it. And it's one where you feel like, as a preacher, you're not worthy to proclaim all that God has to say to us through this text. But that's the responsibility I have been entrusted with, and so I'll do my best today to try to touch on some of the things that I believe God is trying to teach us and say to us through this word. And especially when you're facing a text like this that is, is so rich and, and so varied, you know, you, as a preacher, you're always looking for ways to organize your sermon so that when people get up and they walk out of here, they aren't just saying to themselves, well, what exactly was he just talking about? That's always an occupational hazard uh, for a preacher. But, but my goal is to always do my part so that that doesn't happen. And so as preachers, we have a, a few tried and true tools that we use to try to help organize our, our, our preaching and our structure so that it helps you understand what I'm saying. And so, uh, preachers, we, we, we use things like we like phrases or words that rhyme because rhymes are memorable. So I say have an attitude of gratitude. You'll remember that. We like refrains, you know, some kind of call and response that helps people remember. We know call and response works, you know, the, the, the MC at the rapture. Like, when I say, oh, you say, you know, like that, that sort of stuff works, you know. And so, I, and I grew up with these, some of these, not many, but some of these in church. So some of you will probably be able to complete this if I say, God is good all the time. All the time. Boom, there we go. Okay, we like those. They, they work. And, which we also like phrases that we can invert just like that last one. So when we're preaching, we say things like, people don't care how much you know. They want to know how much you care. Okay, that's, yeah, good. You're going to remember that one. Uh, our second best tool probably in the arsenal for remembering stuff is, is an acronym. If we can organize our preaching points into an acronym so that they are a word and you will remember them, that's like the second best thing we can possibly do. So I I did that whole sermon series last year on evangelism after Easter called Bless, and each one of those was a different thing. And that was super helpful to remember. Acronyms are very helpful for remembering points. Uh, But the, the last and greatest tool I think that we have in our preaching arsenal, our preaching toolkit is alliteration. If you can make every single point of your sermon begin with the same letter, you have reached preaching nirvana. <laughs> and guess what, friends? This morning, we are going to preaching nirvana. Because W5 is not a new tax form. It is the five W's of my sermon this morning. We're going to look at, and these aren't points so much as touchstones to see what God has to teach us here. We're going to look at the well, the woman, the water. Worship and witness. So to the five W's we go. Buckle up. All right, so the first one is the well. Jacob's well. And so John tells us at the beginning of the passage that there's this controversy that's brewing. Jesus has gone down from Galilee to Judea. He's he's cleansed the temple. He's been teaching there. Um, And so now there's this controversy brewing because the Pharisees are noticing that Jesus is successful. John's followers, um, some of them are following Jesus. Jesus is becoming much more popular than John. And so so there's there's controversy, there's tension, um, uh, there's risk brewing, and so Jesus and his disciples leave Judea at, where they had been, and they go back up to Galilee. And so a very, the most basic geography lesson, Bible geography lesson I can give you is this, and it's helpful to remember. So if you think of, there's like basically three tiers, uh, three places in uh, ancient Roman Palestine, and so in the south 
is Judea. That's where Jerusalem and the temple is. And at the top of this three-layered thing is uh, Galilee, where the Sea of Galilee is, and Capernaum and Nazareth, where Jesus does most of his ministry. And right in the middle is this place called Samaria. And as John helpfully tells us, he says Jews and Samaritans had nothing to do with each other. And so if you were a good, God-fearing Jew like Jesus, you would go out of your way to not pass through Samaria. And I'll say a little bit more about that later. But suffice to just say, if you had the option of not going through Samaria, you would bypass it. There were several different routes that you could take that would help you avoid passing through that territory as you were going from the south to get all the way up to the north. But the text tells us that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. That's what John says. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And, and, and it's not a logical necessity. It's not a travel necessity. Jesus didn't have to go there. But the verb that John uses here is one that we call the verb of divine necessity. He had to do it not because of some travel purpose, but because of God's purposes. In order to fulfill the mission that he had been given by the Father, Jesus had to go there. And so we learn here that participating in God's mission means going to the places that you'd rather not go. Passing through the places that you would rather avoid. And we all know what those places are. I would rather not go under, you know, under the uh, freeway down by the Basilica where some of those homeless folks are camped out. I'd rather not go there, so I will let Ryan Hoosier do it. I'd rather not go there. I'd rather not drive all the way over to the east side of St. Paul to go to a small apartment where a family of 10 lives and they cook with spices that are strange to me and they eat food that I would rather not eat, so I'll let Katie Nordenson and Eric Nordenson drive over there and take care of that. But when we do mission like Jesus, and when we do ministry with Jesus, we are going to go to the places we'd rather avoid. That's just how God works. And when they're passing through Samaria, John says that Jesus was wearied from the journey, so he sits down by Jacob's well. He sits down because he's tired and thirsty. It says it's the sixth hour of the day, which means it was about noon, so, so the sun is out there baking. It's hot. It's not a time to be walking Around And so Jesus is tired. He needs to rest his feet. He needs something to drink. And so he sits down. And here we are reminded of something. It might not seem that profound to us, but it's something I think we constantly are glossing over when we're thinking about Jesus. That Jesus thirsted means that he's an actual, real human being. Not some fairy tale figure. Not some superhero. Not some legend. He's real. He's like you and me. He needed to eat and drink. And this cuts against one of the earliest Christian heresies, but I think it's one of the most pervasive and pernicious, that, that it always is rearing its, its ugly head. And, and this was a heresy. It was called docetism. And it comes from this Greek word that means to seem like or only to appear to be. And, and the, the, this teaching was that, that Jesus only appeared to be a human being, but he was something else entirely. So he was only pretending to be thirsty. And, and only pretending to be hungry, and only pretending to sleep, and, and only pretending to suffer and die on the cross. And they thought that, the reason that the docetists thought this and they taught this was they thought that if they 
had Jesus really suffer, really hunger, really thirst, that it would have been threatening this idea of Jesus as, as divine, of Jesus' identity as, as fully divine, because God could not enter into this world that is full of change and decay and death, because if God did that, this material world would corrupt and pollute God. And so they said, well, let's just keep God out of this. It's only a sort of an appearance. It's like, like a, a 3D hologram of Jesus sort of walking around. These things aren't really happening to him. But Jesus thirsted. And so the Christian response to this has always been no. Jesus was fully human in every respect because if he wasn't, we're in real trouble. Christian theology's response to to the docetist type thinking was and has always been this. That which he has not assumed, so that which he has not taken fully into himself, he has not healed. So if there's an aspect of our existence, of our predicament, of our situation that Jesus hasn't touched, then it hasn't been healed. But that which Jesus, the man Jesus, has united to his divinity, he has also saved. And so here we can say that, that even in the Gospel of John, and John is the Gospel most known for having what's called a, a high Christology. So if you don't know what that means, it just has a very exalted view of who Jesus is. I mean, it begins with, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. This, this notion of Jesus' pre-existence from the very beginning. And it, and it talks about the Word becoming flesh, and it, and it ends with doubting Thomas, of all people, exclaiming, My Lord and my God. You cannot get a much more exalted view of Jesus than we see in John. And even in this gospel, Jesus thirsts. And John does not deny for a moment that Jesus was a real human being. That he was fully, completely, 100% human like you and me. And that's good news because whatever we're going through, whatever we're experiencing... God can relate to it because Jesus experienced it. He thirsted. And so that's one thing that we learn from the thirst at the well. And another thing we learn is how Jesus' need, his thirst, leads him to an opportunity for mission. When the woman approaches Jesus at the well, he he doesn't start by saying, Hey, guess what? I've got some uh, springs of living water that are flowing out me, and I will give it to you. He starts the encounter. He begins the conversation by saying, I'm thirsty. I need something to drink. And so he enters this encounter with the woman as the party in need. He needs something from her. And so Jesus is turning the traditional way that we think of mission taking place upside down. Right, the traditional power dynamic is that, you know, the missionary uh, goes to the receiving culture with something to offer. You know, not just the gospel, but we have technology or all of these things that we can give you. And so it's this clear power dynamic, right? We're above and you're down here. We're going to lift you up. And this is how the thinking goes in the church, too. Often as a pastor, we fall into this thinking, I have something to offer you guys. I'm going to serve you. I'll be there for you. I'm the helper. You're the help e. And that's not how Jesus does it. He starts by asking this woman to meet his need. And he totally inverts this encounter by making it first about what she has to offer him and not what he has to offer her. And and it's because of this mutuality that something powerful can happen. 
I can just speak from my own experience of when I first really understood this was when our son Gregory was born, right? And, and, and I was so used to, you know, being the person who brings the meal when someone has a baby or someone's sick. And all of a sudden, people are pouring all of this generosity into our family and love into our family. And it was kind of weird to be in that place. But it was powerful. And God did amazing things through that. And if we don't have that mutuality, I, I think that we can't ever have kind of real, genuine fellowship, relationships, right? If, if people who are, you know, the least, the, the, the lost, the left out, the left behind, they'll never really have a place in our, in our congregation if they're always the recipients of our charity. If we don't allow them to give back to us, they're never going to be nothing but a charity case, an other, and not a brother or a sister. So that's what we learn from the well. We learn about the necessity of God's mission to reach people who are far from him, about the real humanity of Jesus and how he can relate to our experience in every way, and about how real mission and ministry involves this mutuality between the Christian community and those to whom we bear the gospel. We need each other. So that's our first W, the well. But now we're going to look at the woman. And there's so much that is going on with her. And so first, she's going to the well by herself in the heat of the day at noon. And this is unusual because in the Middle East at noon, it's hot. And the saying goes, and it's true, that only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the noonday sun. Because it's hot, you have to be crazy to going out, be going out there by yourself or something else is going on. And we learn later why she's making this journey alone. She's something of an outcast in her own community. And the reason for that is that she's had five husbands and now is living with a man who is not her husband. And the, the, the common line of interpretation, it, it's plausible, but I, I, I think another way of thinking about what is happening with this woman is actually more accurate. You know, normally we say, okay, she's had five husbands, so she's some kind of loose woman character. You know, that's the reason that she's had so many husbands, five husbands. But I think it's probably more likely the case that Within this society, as a woman, you were, you were very vulnerable. And a man could divorce you for any reason. He just had to issue a certificate of divorce, and you could be cast off. And in a, you know, ancient traditional society, children are, of course, a valuable thing. I mean, people loved their children, of course, but children provided security. Children provided a future. Children provided a way for you to provide for your own family. And so one of the main reasons that a man would divorce a woman was that she was barren. She couldn't produce any kids, and if you couldn't produce kids, well then, sorry. I'm going to find someone else who will. And this man who she's living with, who's not her husband, in all likelihood, her husband's brother, because her last husband had died, and now because of the responsibilities of, of a Levrite marriage, he was responsible for taking care of her. And so here is Jesus, you know, this, this teacher, this rabbi, alone talking to a Samaritan woman who was shunned by her community because of her barrenness at the well. And this was unheard of. Even today in, in traditional Middle Eastern settings, an unrelated man and woman are not supposed to talk in public. But Jesus goes on right ahead. He breaks that taboo. 
And she was a Samaritan, right? She represented a rival religious sect, and there was no love lost between the Jews and the Samaritans. They had this deep-seated enmity that went back centuries and centuries. At one point, the Jews had destroyed where the Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim, which she'll talk about. And then in retaliation, the Samaritans had gone in and, and sprinkled pig bones in the temple right before the Passover, so it couldn't be celebrated there. So there was this deep-seated hatred and enmity between these two communities. They had nothing to do with each other, John tells us, and yet Jesus goes and he talks to her. So he's talking to a woman. It's taboo. He's talking to a Samaritan. It's taboo. He's engaging with someone who has been shunned by her own community because of her barrenness. So there's two things that we learn from this woman. And the first is that when Jesus comes, one of the things that he does, when the gospel takes root in a society, one thing that happens is that the status of women is elevated. We see this time and again in the Gospels, right? That Jesus is our, our, you know, even our own fraught gender dynamics. This is unthinkable what Jesus is doing within his day. He's elevating the status of women. And when the Gospel takes root in a society, women are no longer treated as, you know, objects or something to be shunned or hidden or dangerous. They're given as equal status as followers of Jesus. Right? That's what the... Two of the earliest groups who were attracted to Christianity were slaves and women. And that was one of the reasons why the sort of well-to-do of Roman society looked down upon Christianity. They said, this is a movement that's for slaves and for women. It's not for the great, powerful people like us. So that's something that happens when the gospel takes root. Women can be disciples and they can engage in mission and ministry just the same as any other person. Right? We see that here in our own worshiping community, women and men, leaders in equal measure. And a thing that I'm excited that we're going to talk a little bit about next week at our, um, at our congregational meeting is that we're going to be supporting a church plant that's going to be starting in Coon Rapids called Eden Covenant Church. And it's being led by a woman named Trin Peterson, who's not just a female pastor, but she's a female church planter. And that is a, me coming from that world, that's a very rare thing to see. But it's an awesome opportunity that we have because of what Jesus did here. So that's something we learned from the woman at the well. And the next thing we learned from her is that the gospel is a message that crosses boundaries. That it's not just for people like us. It's not just for people who have got their lives together, especially not for people who think they've got their lives together. The gospel is for people who have sinned or who the world has just beaten down. The gospel is for characters. I mean, if you hear this repartee and exchange between Jesus and this woman, it's clear that, that she has some chutzpah, right? She's engaging in this conversation. She is a character. And the church needs to be filled with characters. I always say that if you're a healthy church, you need a character quotient, right? You need your fair share of characters within the church. And if the church doesn't have any characters, something's not right. You've missed a part of the message. So that's the well and the woman, but now we get to this water. So Jesus asks this woman for a drink, and she's so shocked by this question that she doesn't even answer, yes or no, will I give you a drink? She just says, how is it that you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, this question? That Jesus' question does not even compute. It's so out of left field. This shouldn't be happening. 
And Jesus says, well, if you only knew who was asking you for a drink, you would ask me for a drink of living water and I would give it to you. And there's a pun happening here because when Jesus is talking about running, living water, it's just another way to say running water, like from a, a stream. And so, of course, she's like, if I didn't have to go and dip down in this well, but if I just could get this living water that I would never have to come back and, and come to this well again, I would take it. And so, as is often happening in the Gospel of John, Jesus is speaking on this level, and everyone else is hearing it on this earthly, mundane level. But what is this living water that Jesus offers? And if we look deep in the scriptures, we see water is everywhere. It's there in Genesis 1. The Spirit of God hovers over the waters of the deep. Genesis 2, water springs out from the ground, waters the earth. Water is what the Israelites pass through to go from Egypt to the promised land, from slavery to freedom. Water is what the prophets promise will will flow forth from Zion and water the whole earth, bringing out life. Water in the desert. And so water in Scripture, it's about creation. It's about formation. It's about transformation. It's about consummation. It's about renewal. And Jesus' promise of, of this living water, John had said that, you know, I baptize you with water, but someone's coming after me who will baptize you with water and spirit. And so this living water is Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit saying that if you trust in me, if you surrender your life to me, every part of your lives, heart, soul, mind, strength, then you will receive this water that will never run out, that will renew you and refresh you and restore you, and all you have to do is ask for it. Right? That's the water. It's the gift of God's Spirit that gives us life. It takes something that's dead and makes it alive. And like this woman, the reason this, power, this promise is so powerful to her, because if we imagine that she was barren, seen as unable to carry life within her, here Jesus is saying this is going to be a spring, an ever-flowing spring welling up within you. And so that you are no longer barren. No one who has this message in them is barren. They are going to bear life, not biological life, but spiritual life within them. They'll carry around the true source of life. And so all this talk of water then leads this woman to a question about worship. And in this encounter, she's constantly being transformed. First, she just sees Jesus as this thirsty man, then as a Jew, then as a a rabbi, now as a prophet, meaning he's a messenger of God. So she thinks he must have some true insight into this, this question that is the fundamental difference between Jews and Samaritans. Where do we worship God? Samaritans say you do it on Mount Gerizim. Jews say you do it at the temple on Mount Zion. So... Jesus, you're a prophet. Give me the answer. Explain who's right. And Jesus gives her this answer. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And Jesus' answer here has often been taken to be seen that he's saying, well, where and how you worship doesn't really matter. Whatever. This is the uh, post-enlightenment interpretation, which sees disputes about religion as basically silly and irrelevant. One of my, one podcast that I listen to frequently is called The Gist with Mike Peskin. He was talking recently about uh, the New York Times opinion columnist Ross Douthat, who uh, was on a podcast talking about the minutia of Catholic theology. And he's like, it's only so interesting for me because at the end of the day, it's all made up. You're just basically making this stuff up. 
And that's how we can interpret what Jesus is saying here if we don't read it correctly, right? Like, who, who, who cares? But Leslie Newbegin, who was an amazing 20th century theologian, he was a missionary, he said, Jesus' words in verses 21 through 25 have often been used in the interests of a post-enlightenment privatized religion. As though he were saying that religion was an affair of the human spirit to which disputes between Judea and Samaria are irrelevant. This is to abandon altogether the context of the words. Their context is the ultimate contrast between living water and the water which cannot give eternal life. Between the spirit and flesh. Between that which is from above and that which is from, abo- from below. The dispute between Mount Zion and Mount Gerizim, that's the mountain in Samaria, is not an irrelevance. A God who can be represented by all the contradictory images of man's religious imagination is not God. So Jesus is not saying who you worship or how you worship doesn't matter. He's making a much more radical claim than that. He's making the radical claim that what matters now isn't a place but a person. And that the new temple, the new center of worship will be Jesus himself and the community that he gathers around himself in spirit and in truth. That the new temple isn't one made with human hands but it's one gathered together by the Spirit, around the one who is the truth. So that's the fourth W, worship. And now the last one of our alliteration extravaganza, witness. Because of her encounter with Jesus, the Samaritan woman leaves behind her water jar. That's a striking little detail that we see in this story that it's easy to miss. She goes to draw water from this well. That's the one thing that she went to do is get water for the day. And after her encounter with Jesus, she leaves the jar behind. She leaves the well, and she goes in order to bear witness to her fellow villagers about this man who just told her everything she ever did. And she doesn't just leave behind this water jar. She leaves behind her shame. She leaves behind the fact that she had been ostracized. Jesus broke every barrier, every taboo to reach her. And so now she does the same thing. She crosses every single barrier that would keep her from her fellow villagers. She becomes a missionary to the very people who have shunned her and estranged her and treated her with scorn. That's the power of the gospel. And her witness was simple and it was powerful. She said, come and see this man for yourself who told me everything I ever did. And again, that's what it means to be a witness to Jesus. Not that we have this wonderful apologetic or these four spiritual laws we can line up and and explain to everyone and that's going to bring them in. Or that we have airtight answers or arguments for every question. What we have is an invitation to come and see for ourselves this person And what he has done for us. And to say he can do the same thing for you. So those are the five W's of John 4. The well, the woman, the water, worship, and witness. And I close with these beautiful words from Ephraim the Syrian. Who was an early Christian theologian. Who um, wrote all of these hymns. and, And he was a wonderful, insightful commentator on worship. And he talks about the transformation of this woman through this encounter. And he says, at the beginning of the conversation, he didn't make himself known to her. But first she caught sight of a thirsty man, then a Jew, then a rabbi, afterwards a prophet, last of all the Messiah. She tried to get the better of the thirsty man, 
She showed dislike of the Jew. She heckled the rabbi. She was swept off her feet by the prophet. And she adored the Christ. And so may we all experience such a transformation. And may we drink as deeply as her from those streams of living water. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.